do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Hello, listeners. Um, I just wanted to let you know that we had some audio difficulties while recording during this episode. Um, so our audio quality is not our greatest of all time, but it does get better as the recording goes on. So please stick with us. And I promise the conversation is great. So give our audio quality a chance. And thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club, where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film noir classic, The Naked City from 1948, with my wonderful guests, Lauren Lopez and Daniel Strauss. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And today on the show, I have Lauren Lopez and Daniel Strauss. The movie that we watched this week was The Naked City from 1948. How'd you guys feel? What'd you think? I... Okay, let's do it Sarah... Lauren. Sarah, I feel so bad because every time you have me on as a guest, I'm like, I don't like this movie. I was like, she's going to like it this time, too. As I was watching it, I was like, oh, I bet she's going to like it. No, you didn't I'm like it. I'm so sorry. But I have reasons, and they might be really stupid as to why I didn't like it. But we can go into that. I know, are you looking for just like a short answer right now? Like yes yeah, or no? Yeah, just like a quick yes or no, and then we can get into your beefs. Okay, I didn't love it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Daniel, what did you think? I loved it. I did too. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And uh, I was intrigued, and I, I loved uh, the characters. I liked the photography. Um, I, uh, I enjoyed it tremendously. I, I felt similarly to Daniel. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's weird. That's bizarre that Lauren well, would just come on and immediately... It was just... I found it a little boring. And I say this about every old black and white film. And I truly think there's something about the black and white film that it's very hard for me to, like, keep my focus because it's all one color scheme. But also because I literally, I have male actor face blindness. Like, I can't tell any men apart, like, on a good day. And so when you put them all in black and white, I literally was like, I don't know who any, I can't track these men from one scene to the next. So I never knew what the heck was going on. That's a real problem for, I think, a lot of people with black 
white movies is is that they think all the men are the same person. (laughs) No, but it's a real issue for me. Did you confuse the, like, the Irish cop with, like, the other cop? that was the only guy that I could suss out was the Irish, I was like, I know him because he's very distinctive. (laughs) But every other guy, I was like, wait a minute, is this the boyfriend or is this the cop? Like, I couldn't keep them straight. Actually, I, I think that that is actually a fair point in this case because, um, there are a lot of cops who just never get named and just sort of come in and out and you yes. just sort of have to like assign like there's like Brooklyn cop and then there's like sort of like thin faced cop and then there's just like uh the you know the main the Irish cop and then um Halloran is that his name like yeah, those right. two are like the two like but otherwise it's just like a revolving door of police officers who like you never quite know if you're supposed to get attached to any of them but I think there's also an argument that that's, in a way, that's kind of the point. Yeah. Um, there's there's eight million stories in the Naked City, right? There's sure. so many people, so many people. Like that's like a, a yeah. theme of this film. I do want to amend. I feel like it was too harsh for me to be like I didn't like this movie. I just felt I found it difficult to watch for those reasons, which which aren't really fair because it had nothing to really do with like the movie. It was more just my brain's ability to suss out the people in the movie. (laughs) But, like, when it started, I was like, ooh, this is going to be a fun, exciting, like, noir type thing. And then I just got too upset at the fact that I didn't know who anyone was. I've heard this complaint about The Thin Man, the original one, because a lot of the women have the exact same haircut and they're white women with, like, bleached blonde hair. So I had a friend watch it and he was like, I could not tell any of the women apart except one of them had brown hair. And so I get it. When you're watching some sort of mystery, when people from the past have similar looks, no one looks that different. I get it. Um, Well, I'm going to just dive into, like, why I chose this film. Because you had mentioned it's a noir. And one of the things I love about this film is that it's, like, a noir but th- it's funny, um, you know? Like, I love the tone of this film. I love, um, I mean, Daniel mentioned this too. Jules Dassin is like a very gorgeous filmmaker. I feel like he's great with the way shots look. He's great at telling a story and he's his tone is so unique each time. So I love that. And what I love about this as well is uh, that it was mainly filmed on location and it's one of the first films to do that. And it was going to be 100% on location, except um, the police rescinded their offer of shooting in the um, police headquarters. So the only shots that are not on location are the ones that are shot in the police office. And the only one that was shot in police headquarters that they got before they got shut down was uh, there's one shot where someone like walks into the lobby of the police office and that's it. That's the only like indoor police headquarters shot they were allowed. And I actually watched a documentary about this movie last year and remember almost nothing about it. But (laughs) that was one of the things that they talked about. And I was like, ooh, that's interesting. That's super cool, actually. Yeah. So it's like just the fact that they really did shoot everything on location in New York. Like when you're seeing a bedroom in New York, that is a bedroom in New York. Same with the shops, same with everything. So like, that's unique. It wasn't really done on a soundstage. Oh, and this um, won Best Editing at the Oscars. And I don't know when this episode is dropping, but it's Oscars month right now when we're recording it. So that was kind of another fun little like, ooh, it won an Oscar and we're going to discuss it. Um, But I will get into the plot synopsis and then we will just uh, talk about this movie. So this film is called The Naked City. And the whole premise of it is essentially what Daniel had said, that there are eight million stories in The Naked City and this is one of them. 
and it's supposed to be like taking the makeup off of New York City. We open with a voiceover by the producer, Mark Hellinger, who actually passed away um, the year before this film came out. He watched, well, not the full year, but like he passed away in 1947 and the film came out in 1948. And he watched one of the final cuts of the film before it was released. So like, this is all posthumous when people saw this after Mark Hellinger's passing. So the real producer is really doing a voiceover about what he wants you all to witness. We're seeing like live helicopter footage, airplane footage of New York in the 1940s. And it looks really stunning, I, I think. Um, I get how it would, Lauren would probably be like, it would look better in color. And I get that. No, no, it did look, I actually, no. Yeah, that's my complaint is that these movies aren't in color. I think well, it would be, be better. That would be a lot of people's. I get it. Like, um, I get it. No, it wasn't I... in high def. It's fuzzy. <laughs> Why is it fuzzy like that? It doesn't look good on my TV. Yeah. I have a 4K TV, and I feel like I'm. it's a waste to watch. It's like somebody with a camera in high school. When was this film? Like, 1992? But I actually thought that beginning part was really cool. It's gorgeous. That's, what, that's when I was getting excited. Yeah, okay. Because you saw, like, oh, wow, this is going to be different. Yeah. Because it starts off different than a lot of films, right? Yeah. So it, it introduces us with a voiceover, and it kind of shows the different people in the town at this time. So it's like, this is nighttime. Here is what the city looks like. Here is what these people at their job looks like. And this is what this person at their job looks like. And it kind of shows slice of the life New York stories. And it... um. In the beginning, we hear the voiceovers of what the people that we see are thinking. Um, and then we get to a murder. We see a murder happening. And then they move on from the murder very quickly. And you're like, whoa, wait, what? A murder happened. And then another murder happens. It's very smart because they show one of the murderer's faces, but you can't really see the other murderer. So you're like, mm, I don't know. Um, and they show nightlife happening, which is also interesting because that character... Frank Niles is going to become important later. So you're seeing people that are going to become important later in the film, but you don't know it because they're mixed in with just like regular everyday slice of life New Yorkers. Um, so we witness a murder. We see, we meet New York and the people of New York. Um, and then we meet the homicide investigators. We meet Muldoon, who is played by Barry Fitzgerald, who is like an Academy Award winning character actor from the day. And I love that like the biggest name in this piece is like a character actor. And uh, it's just kind of like another day on the job for him. And then we meet his protege named Jimmy, who is a very, very handsome Don Taylor. He's very dreamy, I think. Um, and he's kind of like the young Irish descent cop coming up. So we've got like these two cops trying to solve this homicide. And we see all the steps that they go through to make the solving of this homicide possible. The homicide in question is this woman named Jean Dexter. She was a model. They associate her with this guy, Frank Niles. Uh, they find out that they were both involved in like a jewelry smuggling ring. There are going to be spoilers in this plot synopsis, by the way. Um, but you would have heard that at the beginning of the show. So really shame on you at this point if you haven't figured that out. So after they figure out they're part of this jewelry smuggling thing, they realize that there were two other men involved. One of them is the harmonica player, Willie Garza, who's also a wrestler. And it turns out he was the murderer the whole time. And we had seen him several times throughout the picture and didn't totally know he was the murderer. And then we figured it out. And then he gets caught. And then he runs to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge. And then he gets shot and he dies. And uh, and that's, that's the Naked City. And, uh, you know, they kind of have this closing thing of, you know, Gene Dexter's parents had to come identify the body. And it was very sad. And they say, you know, Jean, Jean Dexter, her name, her face, her history were worth five cents a day for six days. And then they say the famous, I said it before, there are eight million stories in the Naked City. This has been one of them. And 
that's the end of the film. Um, it's going to move on to another day, and uh, we're still in the naked city. There are more stories to tell here. That's, that's the movie. I did really like the intro. I thought that was really fun. Also, the voiceovers were very funny to me, and I don't know if they were intended to be funny, but, like, the voiceover for the woman was like, Oh, yeah, what's up? It was, like, really, like, cartoony. Um, but then also, I, I really liked how the movie was just, like, a slice-of-life thing. I, I tend to like those movies a lot. So I did appreciate that, that it was just, like, this is just one moment in, like, the grand scheme of this city where a million things are happening. It's inspired by Italian neorealism, right? I mean, that like, it, it's a, it's a movie that um, feels a lot in, in some ways feels a lot like the bicycle thief um, or his bicycle thieves. I can't remember. Who were the guys who the bike? Y- yeah. I can't yeah. get a job you know, now. I got the job and I got right. no bike. I'm, right. The, the premise of that movie is a guy gets his bike <laughs> stolen. And it's like, what would you do if you got your bike stolen? He's Italian. You, yeah. He's, he finishes up his spaghetti and he's like, I gotta go figure out what I'm going to do. <laughs> so he's, it's just him like going around, like trying to like figure out what he's going to do and like try to find this bike. And it, there were moments in this film that felt very similar to that when the cops, I mean, how much is we just cops just like walking up to people and be like, do you know this person? No, you Okay, whatever. Then, like, when he actually, like, goes into the wrestling gym and he shows the guy the picture and he's like, uh, or he's like, you know, do you, you know guy played the harmonica? The guy's like, yeah, I know somebody. Like, I was like, what? Like, I, yeah. like, I like, literally, like, had a physical reaction because I was like, are you kidding me? I, I didn't, I, like, of course they're going to find this guy. It's, it's a movie and this is the premise of the movie. But, like, it really felt the enormity of the city. I, like, it, I could feel it. Like, I was like, he's going to be looking, they're going to be looking forever for this guy. So I, I it, I was actually excited when they, they turned up a lead. Willie Garza, when they do catch him, he almost gets away. And he says to Jimmy, like, this is a great, big, beautiful city. Just try and find me. So you're right. There is like, even when they catch him, you're like, oh, he could still get away. But I think what's cool about this film as opposed to other films, I'm so glad you brought in like the Italian neorealism because I feel kind of dumb. I didn't really associate that, but you're right. That's probably a part of this. Um, but I love that this film shows like the work behind police work, because I feel like in a lot of films, the police people just know the answers or they just, you know, come across things really quickly. So I like that this shows like the mundane work behind it and how many people are involved and how much manpower it takes. I mean, they're still going to show police in like a really positive light because it's like a code film. So they like can't show police in a negative light. But uh, I, I do think that's really cool about this film that they kind of you feel like you're seeing the underbelly of it all, but not like the dirty underbelly, like the real life, realistic underbelly of it all, like what the job must actually be like. Totally. And you see their home lives, too. Um, you connect it with like Jimmy goes home and has like a kind of normal home life. Muldoon is alone. Like you you see their little slices of life that don't feel grandiose. They feel very simple and like people you would know. I guess is what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. Well, and and I want to be very clear that I did not come up with the Italian neorealism <laughs> thing on my own. Um, I this film is is on the Criterion Channel streaming service, and there's a bunch of extra features. Um, there's Ooh. a bunch of like interviews, and there's a whole commentary track. I didn't watch the commentary track, but I watched a large portion of an interview. There's one with the Safdie brothers, who if you've never seen them give an interview, really. It's it's only like five minutes long, but um, it's very funny. Uh, Josh is like 
a faucet just keeps talking and then at one point like benny tries to talk and there's an and like Josh is like hang on can you let the interviewer talk and it's it's very funny like most a lot a, a significant portion of the interview is them discussing how the interview should go um wow. only five minutes but um but there's that and then there's an, an interview with a, with a film professor uh from nyu who it's about like 20 minutes long and one of the things that he said is that this is a movie this is 1948 so this is right after the war so there's a sort of uh, a, a reassurance uh, in watching these police officers solve the crime, right? The, the crime is the crazy thing, but, but the police stand firm and the police follow a series of, of tasks that are mundane, but that need to be completed. And then they solve the crime and then the crime is done and crime will continue, but the police will continue to stop the crime because the police, you know, like, so it's it's like reassuring a, a world that had just gone through a massive period of instability. Who the hell knows what that's like? Uh, <laughs> that in fact, you know, everything was going to be okay. So I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah, that's super interesting. And the fact that it's like a noir with a happy ending, because I feel like so many noirs, like after World War II, people were really unsettled and started making art that felt unsettled. But there are antiheroes and they're going to like, tragically die for their crimes um so like we start seeing the seedy underbelly films come out and this is a noir this is a murder mystery but it doesn't have that like it's got comedy and lightheartedness and yeah i just think that makes it really unique i mean and they do that in um i feel like they get a lot of their comedy from like the quote-unquote real people interactions and um from like the normal things that you would see because it's like that's what life is right these awful things happen but then there's these moments of levity so like there's a murder that's happening but then there are children playing out in the street and children jumping in the water there's the two women looking at the dress shop you know yes. like they're getting questioned about the murder and the women are like i would look so good in that dress can you imagine me looking at frankie singing and you're like that's really light and it brings up like the mood a bit um yes. and then the quotes i marked down were like when they would lighten things on the crime scene, like there's a dead body right there, but everyone's going about it as like business as usual. And I think someone says to Muldoon, like, have fun. And he goes, I always do. So you're like, ooh, but it's, I don't know. I, I never think it goes too far. Like, I don't think they're taking it too lightly. I think it's for the audience because we never, a lot of um, noir films, I feel like can be kind of grisly, but this one, it's like, we never see the body. We never see the dead body. We know that it looks gruesome because the woman screams when she sees mm -hmm. the body or, um, even when Garza is murdering his protege, we, we never fully see the the crime of it. We see him like lifting his arm and we see like through the shot, it looks, it's a beautiful shot, but we never see the grisliness of it all. So it's like by keeping us from that, maybe it's not like the greatest tactic, but it keeps the audience feeling okay. I, you know what I mean? It doesn't completely unsettle you. I think the moment that you're the most scared in this film is when, um, what's his face when Jimmy goes into Garza's apartment alone yeah and Garza with the towel surprisingly quickly smothers him and there's this moment of oh my god his job is dangerous and I'm really scared he's not going to make it out alive and they don't even let us sit with that for long because Garza's immediately like look I'm not going to kill you copper because that's stupid so even that one moment of like oh my god is he going to kill him there's tension they dissipate it because they it's like this movie is constantly looking out for us and just wanting us to know that it's going to be okay, which some people I think would argue makes it not such a great film, but which I would say makes it different from other noir films of the day and makes it makes it entertaining and satisfying. Mm -hmm. First of all, he hit him with a rabbit punch and that's illegal. 
And yes. I was glad that he that he explained that to us after the guy was knocked out, that he explained to no one. He says, that was a rabbit punch, and that's illegal. And I was like, oh, okay. Thank you for explaining that. He did um, it for us, Daniel, to lighten the mood. He's like, yeah. people at home, yeah. I knew you were feeling tense. Allow me to lighten this situation. One thing that I, that I came across when I was uh, doing a little research is that there is actually, it seems like, this is classified as a noir, but it's also classified as a procedural. Um, th there were a few places where people kind of referred to it as a procedural as opposed to a noir, um, which I think might explain some of the sort of like, and, and I think that this actually eventually became a television show. There was a television show yeah, starring Muldoon called The Naked City, and every episode is a story in The Naked City. You know, like your CSI or your NCIS. The Diane Carroll one won an Emmy. I just need you to know that. Okay. So I think that like that there is an aspect of it that it's that it's actually it's sort of outside of that genre of, of typical noir and more in the realm of like police story, which is not which like we know is like the same world, but not exactly the same thing. Because a noir traditionally has those things that you were saying. Sarah, you know, like the, yeah. more like the grittiness, like this does have more of that levity that feels like it honestly lends itself more to a television program. Like you just said, when he shoots the, the or when you think he's going to shoot Halloran, I absolutely, I was like, oh my God, this guy who, did, who wouldn't whip his kid is going to get shot. This is terrible. Um, but he, but he doesn't, right? Because, and the reasoning would be that character has to be in the next episode. You know, like you, you kind of like start to think of it in that way. It's funny that you brought up the characteristics of noir because I literally, because I'm a big fat old nerd, I've been doing um, these seminars with the New York Adventure Club <laughs> where they do webinars about classic movies like every couple weeks. And last night they did one about noir and how vast like the genre is. So like there are so many branches of noir and the word is used in so many different ways that he was like, can noir have musical numbers? Yes. Can noir be in technicolor? Yes. Can noir have this? Can noir have that? So it's like noir can contain all these other aspects too. So like this is a procedural noir and it's like also a lighthearted noir. It's like the weirdest how, what a vast genre this is and how much it can include. The procedural aspect I hadn't totally considered and I'm really glad you brought that into it because this was likely... I mean, I know there were procedural radio programs at the time, but I wonder how many procedural films there were around this time. I actually wanted to ask you totally separately about Garza because I think it's a really cool reveal and a cool character. Um, I mean, throughout the film, they're giving us teases of Garza. So they kept showing us Garza, like, on the town. But if you haven't seen the film before, you don't know he's the murderer. So like, I've seen it before. So I'd be like, ah, there's Garza there. Oh my gosh, there he is again. And they even would, during the narration, they'd be like, well, we have to tie up loose ends. And they'd say that over a picture of Garza, like walking down the street. So they were telling us throughout who the murderer was. But I think what's also interesting is like, we're seeing slice of life of the murderer. Like this is a murderer who would buy the newspaper of like when the woman he murdered dies, reads it and laughs and is excited about it. And this is also a guy that plays the harmonica and plays the harmonica for kids. They show you like all of these aspects of this killer. And he's a guy who's like a wrestler at your local wrestling hole. I don't know if that's a thing. No, that's, that is the technical term for it. Thank you, the wrestling hole. Proud of you. I'm proud of you for getting that. <sighs> 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's just so different from a lot of other like, hey, I'm a bad guy, see? I, yeah. I just found it really refreshing. And the intelligence behind the scene where um, Jimmy Halloran, who you're like, please don't go in there. Wait for backup. What are you doing? When he goes in and spots him and Garza's just like exercising. You just don't expect it. It really plays with your expectations. And then when we see him in the mirror and he smothers him with the towel so quickly, I didn't see that coming the first time I saw it. Did you guys see that coming? What did you think of Garza? How did he meet or like alter your expectations? I just want to hear your thoughts on Garza as played by Ted DeCorsia, I should mention. I did not see that coming, but and but I am going to say again, I did not track that that was the same guy <laughs> throughout a lot of the different things. It took me a really long time to be like, oh my God, it's this guy. Um, because I kept thinking he was other people. Like, like just in the scenes and stuff, it didn't like yeah. occur to me when he'd be walking by or like when they'd show those like quicker ones yeah. did not compute at all because I was like every man is the same man and no man at the same time well and he does look different each time though that's the other thing like one I don't think you're supposed to clock it do you are you just saying that to make me feel better they dress him different each time we see him like he looks totally different in sure. a suit than he looks when he's in his exercise clothes or his like that button-down shirt he was wearing where he's like, hey, it's summertime. Look at my summer look. Um, that's what he was thinking, I think, while he was yeah. wearing that look. That line um, was cut out of this, yeah. right? Yeah. No, it, it was in there. <laughs> was it was it? in there. <laughs> yeah, he says it. Yeah, it's summertime. Look at my summer look. He says that while he's walking down the street. He does a little shoulder clip. Yeah. 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 I was yeah, correct. Yeah, he says that. He does wear the same hat, though. I need to tell you that he wears the same hat throughout. But yeah, I just, I don't know. Daniel, were you surprised? Had you, first of all, Daniel, had you seen this before? And were you surprised by Garza in that moment? Remarkably, I had not seen this movie before. I think I like almost watched it once. And then I had to like help, you know, one of my kids <laughs> fell out of a boat or something. I don't know. <laughs> but I, 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 I had never seen it. Um, or, or if I saw it, it was, a, it was a very long time ago. I sort of like it. What became clear to me while I was watching it is they kept on cutting to him and showing him. And by about the third time they did it, I was like, they keep showing this guy. He must be the killer. Um, because I feel like that's that has been I've seen in other movies where they just sort of show the killer walking around, like having their you know they're going about town and and um and if and i was like and he's not talking to anybody else or the police so or anyone he just they just keep showing him so that i guess that's him although he did look he did look different when they finally got him in the apartment um right he he looked different yeah, a lot he looked, he looked a little different. but his he's like he's like don't i look good he's like aren't i in good shape and i was like yeah and you're in Great shape. You look terrific. He was in really good shape. I was so impressed by his leg thingies where yes. he swishes his legs like a little windmill. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that anymore. That's some good core work. I was a little concerned that he was so sweaty and laying on that rug because I was like, that sweat is now just in that rug forever. That's so true. I was really grossed out by the sweat towel. He was he was wiping under his armpits yes. with a sweat and then goes and smothers Jimmy with that sweat towel. And I was like, yeah. oh. Gross. I'm real yucky. And they yeah. filmed that. Jimmy should not have gone in there. He shouldn't have. Jimmy no. should not have gone in there. That was a huge mistake. He should have gone back to uh, Ann Sargent in that absolutely adorable outfit that she was wearing and just, you know, hung out with this kid and, and and had a nice night that was a big mistake he left an ice cold root beer without even sipping it 
that to run into did this. did bother me. That bothered me. Yeah, that that's really a huge bothered problem. Me. Huge problem. Not just a root beer, like a 1948 root beer where Ooh. they like, you know, they get it from like a fountain. They get it from like, the root. Exactly. No joke though, that root beer probably was the best. Yeah. Probably very good, right? Yeah. And he didn't need to yeah. run off. You didn't have backup. Drink the root beer, cool down. Yeah. I will say he did very good hot acting. I feel like there was a lot of sweat acting, you know what I mean? Of like, oh, it's yeah. hot. I really believed that he was hot. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. cool. <laughs> Actually, that's awesome. Actually, that is awesome. Yeah. Can I say one more thing? Yeah, uh, oh, I do want to talk about the root beer. Yeah. I do want to, because when he left and she was like, Mr. your root beer. I was like, you went the root, you paid five cents for that. But sort of in that same vein, um, the way that, uh, the way that the other people in the area in his neighborhood like him they obviously like him like the woman in the in the root beer place is immediately very concerned that she's gotten him into trouble the child is like oh yeah he's a great guy you know we all like him so another thing that i'm stealing from this video that i watched is that you know this these are sort of the immigrant people uh, you know, every, everybody on like the Lower East Side, this woman running the root beer shop, these guards, obviously, these are the immigrants. And there's a sort of a, of a racial element here of the white police officers coming to make sure that that these people stay in line so that there's this sort of community mentality within the immigrants of like they want to protect Garza because he's one mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, you know, he's he's obviously committed this crime. And, and what what was interesting, and I, I didn't get to watch the whole thing, but he was talking about how um, Muldoon, obviously, it's a little complicated because Muldoon is Irish. Yeah. Um, but that that essentially there are times in history you can track when certain uh, minorities basically become accepted as white. Uh, and that this may have been around the time that Irish people were basically, you know, accepted as uh, as white people. Because it does feel like there's a real hierarchy. There. Totally. Well, and Irish people were cops back then. Like, that was like, when you immigrated to America, if you were Irish, a lot of them became police officers. And I think that was like a big shift for what you were saying, like the Irish community being seen more, I don't even know whether to call it as white or not, but as like, not quote unquote othered. Um, but I hadn't pieced together the immigrant status of it because the, for me, a lot of this movie is about, I think, facades, right? So we see a lot of the wealthy people's facade. You, when you first see Frank Niles, you think he's a totally different character from what he really is. And um, Willie Garza is probably the same. Like he's this jovial dude that's an acrobatic wrestler that plays the harmonica, right? There's all these facades that we see. Um, but what I hadn't pieced together was the immigrant component, because in my mind, what was icky about that was the informant aspect. Like we're constantly showing how the wealthy aren't doing well. It's all about like the simplicity of life. And, you know, they make so many comments about like, well, you know, she wanted too much and that's why she couldn't have it all. It's like the simple characters that can live off of nothing that are the ones that are revered in this film. But that's the one part where there's like, they're turning the regular people into informants and I could never quite put my finger on what that was, you know? Mm. But the, Daniel, I think, named it more. But that's the only part of the film where you're looking at the the main characters who have kind of been, you know, the slice of life heroes the whole time and you're like, ooh, that does feel a little icky that they're getting 
people to to inform on other people in a way that doesn't feel above board. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like that didn't I didn't even clock that and I think it was because I was too busy sussing out who <laughs> Who are these people? Who is anybody? You were the problem was Lauren was confused because when he left the root beer shop and he's he's talking to a little girl, he was like, Why is why is he still talking to the, the woman from the root beer shop? Yeah, yeah. But it's a little girl. It's a right. different person. And that was so hard. And Lauren was like, when did that woman get on a swing? Like, right. it's, it was crazy. It was and then when lot. he goes in and he's talking to Garza, he's like, oh, my God, is he going to arrest Muldoon? Like, he's going to, like, this is crazy. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. Uh, it was tough for me, guys. I am so sorry. I really do not have much to add because uh, the whole time I was working out which man was which, and it really took up a lot of my brain space and a lot of time. There are 8 million people in the Naked City, and all of them look the same. That's what they should have said at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Also, that's a great point, Daniel, how 8 million people are in this story, and yet we see, like, no people of color. That was in my modern lens oh, yeah. thing. There's I, I one person that. of color who is yeah. in a serving position. Of course. Um, yeah. And all of the women we see are complete idiots, which we will also get to in the modern yeah. lens portion. Um, so some fun shit that I learned about the location from the documentary I watched a year ago. Great. Um, this is what I remember. I remember that they would show, so like, again, these are all real location shots of New York City. And, um, there were certain scenes where if you would freeze on a certain point, you could see how many days later the shooting would resume. So if there was like a movie or a theater or something in the background and it had a date on it, if you were to pause, you could see like the dates that they shot the film and then you could see what was playing next in the theater. It was, it's really cool. Whoa. They would pause certain parts of the film to show that on the documentary. That's neat. Um, cool. It's just, that's really cool. And then I'm sure you, you guys probably noticed this too. There's a lot of looping in this film. And it's because when they were doing certain things, they couldn't get the sound right, so they'd have to add it after. So, like, the scene when um, they're in the elevator going up to talk to his brother on the construction site, that was all looped because they couldn't quite get the sound right. Like, so there was a lot of looping going on because of the location shooting. Um, and sometimes you could really tell, especially the scene um, that, I okay, they did something about the scene, and I can't remember if it was because it was sunrise or sunset, when they're talking to the parents by the bridge and it's supposed to be sunset, I think it might actually have been sunrise when they shot it. But uh, the first part of that scene, you can very much see that it was looped and it was because they just wanted to get that shot before, you know, before yeah. it altered too much. All those scenes where the voiceover is, is like, have you seen anyone like this? No. Okay. Like I assumed I was like, they must just have not been able to get the sound because yes. they're in New York City. Yep. Yeah. And like really shooting in a hair salon and like really shooting on the street. So they were like, we'll add it. We'll add it. So looping is like the star of the film. I noticed that there was a lot of stuff that sounded like it was ADR'd and I was like, hmm, they're really they're really relying on this uh post production work yeah. a lot. But that makes yeah. total sense now that it's because they were on location. And that's why it won an editing Oscar, I think. You know, like adding all of these components together is really impressive for 1948. Didn't it win two Oscars? It won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Nice. Best Film Editing. And it was nominated for Best Writing. That's it. But yeah, it won two. Wow, so it won two of three? Yeah. Huge. So Jean Dexter dies. She is murdered. Jean Dexter is not her real name. She comes from a small town in New Jersey, 
And when her parents come to look at her body, at first they're like, the mom is really upset. And she's like, I hate her. She's awful. She wanted too much. This is ridiculous. And then she sees, you know, the body of her daughter and she breaks down and is like, oh, my baby. And then they have this beautiful scene with the Brook. I think it's the Brooklyn Bridge in the background, right? Yeah, I think so. And then in the end, the murderer is caught on the Brooklyn Bridge. Ah. And before this viewing, I had never pieced that together. But now I went, oh my God, I get it. It's so smart. The Ugh. Brooklyn Bridge was in the background at sunset and now he will die in the light of day on the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, but the bridge scene was incredibly impressive. So can we just like chat about that for a moment? Just like the gorgeous shots and the way it all went down. Sure, hell yeah. He's running away and he's he's got this, basically he's gonna get away until he runs into a, a blind person with a seeing eye dog. The dog bites him, and he's like, well, I have to shoot this dog now, which was... No, I hated that. I know, Lauren, I had a feeling you were not going to want to talk about this. We can go by it very quickly, but I will say that I was like, that was a mistake, man. You shouldn't have done that. You could just run away from the dog. Um, and he even thinks it in his head he's like don't lose your head and then he does it anyway so it's really interesting that we're in his head in that moment and he still can't control himself and luck like the first time he got away because there was a train right there the second time he tried to get on the bus and he couldn't get on it and just the odds of like what are the odds that you would bump into a blind person and they're seeing eye dog and they're seeing eye dog would attack you what are the odds yeah Yeah, it felt it felt that felt a little inventy to me Uh, to me like and maybe that's unfair maybe i'm judging it too much from through a modern lens i think you are uh, the fact that he then like shot the dog i was like come on he like he's running away from he's being pursued by police like that would be one of the stupidest things you could possibly do and up until this point this guy has been pretty smart he's you know he's not gonna join mensa but like you know he knows how to throw a rabbit punch that's not even legal (laughs) right and he chloroformed that guy yeah i mean like he's done a number of seemingly intelligent things but anyway yeah then he escapes onto the bridge and they're chasing him on the bridge and they're shooting up at him i was very taken there was a shot where you know he gets hit and you can see that his hand is covered in blood he's just got and i was like damn that's like graphic for like 1948 like and He's also there was this part where he was running and he sort of like had it. He was like doing like like a velociraptor run. Did anybody else see that? Yes, like a I marked run? it down. Like he was sort of like running like this. What was up with that? I don't know, man. That was funny. Because it wasn't just the hands; it was the vacant face. He had the hands and this look in his eyes. It's like, was that like a joke shot? He thought was going on the gag reel, and they just it was the only usable shot they had. That was so weird. Well, especially because now that you mention that, he was so great graceful vaulting over those walls. It was art to watch him gently leap over the walls. So then to see him run in a velociraptor way. Yeah. He wanted to do one for the DVD bonus features. He was like, guys, this one's for the DVD. Yeah. And started his little dog paddle run. And then they were like, they were like, listen, we have bad news. You know, we lost our permit again. And we are going to have to use the shot of you doing the raptor run that made us all laugh so hard in rehearsals. We loved it in rehearsals. We did it so many times that you were the, we made, you made us laugh so hard, but we are going to have to put it in the movie now. And that's what ruined his career. Yeah, that was it. Although I will say, it seems to me that his real downfall was the same as Gene Dexter. He just wanted too much because if he hadn't gotten greedy, he would not have murdered her. And then if he hadn't also tried to like create, so he, he knocks out, uh 
John, I, I cannot remember this character's name to save my life. Halloran. Halloran. Jimmy Halloran. Yes. I want to call him like mm-hmm. Teddy, and that's not his name. His name is Jimmy. He knocks him out. I had that happen a lot with me in this movie too, where I was like, right? that guy, like I, for some reason, every time Frank Miles came on, I was like, his name is Frank Liss. And then <laughs> I was like, that's not his last name. This is very similar to the problem I was having. It's just like one step removed. So I just want to tell you like, you're acting all high and mighty, well, okay? Well, it's extremely you different. You remember anyone's name? If you held up flashcards with the characters and you said, you know, who is this person? If you held up two of the people and you're like, are they the same person? I would be able to say no. I might not well, be able to name them, but I say, well, they're obviously not saying. That's what you think. Those are black and white photos of two different men. That's what I would say. And Lauren, you would say, I, oh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> they're the same, but it's not that wrong. I mean, yeah. You know. I'm not passing judgment. Both things can be true. But two things can be true at once. That's true. That is yeah. true. Thank you for saying that. All I was saying was that he just wanted too much because it was like he knocks this guy out and he clearly like cleans himself up and takes a shower and looks nice before he leaves. If he had just left all sweaty, he might have gotten away. He wanted too much in being clean. But also, I did love that moment when the police chief says to Jimmy, "Don't I don't want any dead heroes. Don't be a hero. He's got nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. Why, why are you chasing him? Because I feel like in every other movie, it would be about like, look at this heroic chase. Look at us both climbing. Look at me saving the day. When really, like, he climbed as high as he could. They shot him and he fell into the water. Like, yeah. it was very, um, nobody was really the one singular hero. Um, although the hunch paid off, I did think that was like a, you know, one heroic thing that Jimmy did. It's like, I got this hunch about these bodies being connected. And then the chief was like, I don't know, show me. And he's like, I will. And then he did. Yeah, that was another thing in that uh, in that essay that I watched is that they were talking about how like, the the police are like they're very by the book the whole way through they'll let you like maybe bend the rules like a tiny bit but like uh, within reason you know like this guy's like you know please let me just go follow this lead that will probably go nowhere and just result in me talking to a bunch of people and they're like yeah all right fine you can do that you know (laughs) like they really they, they stay pretty much within the walls of this like this system the system works. Just follow the plan. Do what we usually do, and, and we will catch this guy. Um, and anytime they try to go even outside of that, when he goes into the apartment without anybody else, what happens? He gets, you know, I, I hate to say it again, but the rabbit punch is illegal. He gets him with it. Yeah. So. I did want to also just circle back because my brain just connected a dot. You know how you were like, his hand was really bloody? I think that was from the dog, not the bullet. Oh, yeah, probably. You're right. Because his sleeve was all ripped up. So I'm like, wow, the dog maybe did that. But like the dog was correct. He was messed up by the end when he's going up those stairs. I was like, this guy is messed up. He's all <laughs> like, you know, kind of like wobbling all over the place. Uh, just usually like in these movies, like, uh, you know, they get shot or they get hurt or something. They just go like, and then like, there's nothing, you know? But like, I was like, this guy is, he's, he's not, he was in good shape, but now he's in bad shape. Yeah. yeah. And that's, 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 that's an arc. Yeah. He had a crazy day. Speaking of arcs and crazy days, no, watch this segue. Let's talk about Frank Niles and his arc and his crazy I'm days. I'm so glad. I'm so glad we're finally going to talk about Which Frank Niles. Which one is he? He's, <laughs> I'm not he's even the kidding. Guy, Which one is he, he is the guy who was in league with Gene Dexter helping set up the robbery. 
stories. He's the guy who ends up in jail. He's the guy yeah. who was like the rich kid who was lying all the all time. All over the place, yes. Yeah. One of my instant favorite characters in the entire history of cinema for no reason other than he would immediately lie. Yes. Just like tell a complete for no lie. Reason. And then someone would walk in the room three seconds later and they'd be like, is that true? And they'd be like, no, it was incredibly easy to find evidence that proves that is in no way true yeah. at all. And then they would just look back to him and he'd be like, uh, you got me. I, that you are right. That is yeah. true. Like, and he'd be like, he'd be like, that was a lie. But the next thing I'm going to tell you is that this is the truth. And they'd be like, no, and then it's that would not. be a lie. Yeah. Then a guy would walk in and yeah. be like, he's never had a job. And then they all look at him and he's like, okay, that also was a lie. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I didn't have a job. Okay. Yeah. That's on me. I should have said. They find him in the apartment and Garza's about to kill him and they, you know, chase Garza off. And Muldoon's like, look, you're coming with me and you're going to have to tell me what the hell is going on around here. <laughs> and he's like, you'll never prove anything. You'll never prove it. I was like, he must not have done it. Like, I, I was almost like, I was like, what is the ace this guy has up his sleeve? I was waiting for him to like reveal that he was trying to like, protect somebody else or like there was some sort of thing that was that was crashing down on him that it was incredibly important that he you know it ended up just being that he was just to save his ass but like when he was like oh, you, you're not gonna prove anything i was like this guy is just all in all the time yeah <laughs> He's, he's doubling like, down. He's in so much trouble. These people are real. He was the most realistic character to me in this whole thing. Yeah. Like that rich kid who cannot accept the consequences of their action. Those people lie to the fucking ground. They're, yeah. they're narcissists and their reality will alter based on how they need to be perceived. So I was just watching it being like, you are a person that I know. Yeah, he's kind of like the fire festival guy. He sort of know? is. Who like the whole time is like, no, that that bad stuff didn't happen. It was like, it was a festival. Like it happened. You're just like, what? Yeah, they're like showing him a picture of like the bread on the cheese. Yeah. And they're like, what? <laughs> is this the food you gave everybody? He's like, well, that's the food that was there. But it's not the food. You know, I don't, I can't tell you what happened i don't know like i was trying to do a good thing that day i was like right. I, I was with some friends trying to have fun with the music in the, in the on the island so and then a guy comes over and goes like you weren't even on the island that day and what, what i what i also love is that there were like occasional things like when he was like i was at this other place and this guy comes like yeah we found four witnesses that was the other place it's like okay all right i guess I guess you've told the truth now about one. Yeah, I guess you're. I guess you're honest now. Okay. And they showed him in the beginning at the Trinidad Club, so we really did know that he didn't technically kill her, even though he was very much involved. Right. He's part of my whole like facade theory. When you first meet him, you think one thing about him based solely on his looks and the way he carries himself, and all of that is unraveled. What's so great about Frank Niles is that yes. he lies about things that aren't even pertinent to the case. Right. Like when he's like, he's like shaking. He's like, "Oh, why are you shaking?" He's like, "Oh, it's from the war." And then they're like, "They're like, we just um, ran the numbers, and you actually didn't. You weren't in the war. You didn't even go." He's like, "Yeah." Oh. Yeah, that's true. You did get me. They found it in two seconds. They did a Google. But what I wanted too was he was like, I couldn't be in the war because of my trick knee playing football in college. And I wanted someone to come and be like, you've never played football in college yeah. at yeah. all. Which I guess they did because they were like, you dropped out of college. Yeah, they essentially yeah. did that. It's just funny that he like, that these weren't even things he needed to, like, he could just be like, I'm nervous. Oh, another, another great line is when he lies to cover for 
to call. They're like, Did, have you ever met this woman? The woman who he's engaged to be married yeah. to. He's like, he's like, I don't know that name. I don't know that name. Kind of, I don't know though. And then she comes in. And she's like, oh, darling, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I guess I, yeah, you know what? I maybe I do. And then later he's like, he's like, I'm sorry, you know, like you understand, like I had to lie. I, you know, I didn't want to get my wife involved in a murder investigation. Well, dude's like. Yeah, no, I've never had to do that. I've never had my wife's never been involved with a murder investigation. <laughs> like just being like, you wouldn't be in, in this situation if you obviously hadn't screwed around and landed in it yourself, buddy. Don't make excuses here. But also the lies are part of his persona and he's not used to people checking up on it is the other part of this because Lauren joked about Google, but they didn't freaking have Google back in the day. So if you wanted to disprove someone, you had to go to your local library and go through the microfiche and find newspaper articles about the past. No one has time for that. Maybe the police officers clearly do, but everyone besides <laughs> them doesn't have time for that. So you could lie about anything. And if you came from money or looked like you were rich, people took your word. And he's used to people taking his word. That's not any different from now i mean that hasn't changed at all I, I i mean i don't think wealthy people lie all the time and get away with it i mean like the, the biggest liar in the history of people who tell lies was the last president of the united states and he obviously got away with it he continues to get away with it you know i mean if, if, I'm specifically wealthy white people are allowed wealthy let me hang on let me even refine it more wealthy white men are allowed to lie about absolutely anything and get away with it. I mean, that hasn't changed at all. And they were the biggest cowards. Like, they're the biggest cowards of them all. They're the ones that are pretending to have done these great things and will crumble at the slightest provocation. Like, Frank constantly ends up crumbling. Like, he has no courage or conviction. And what I thought was really funny in this viewing was um, there's the one scene that you had mentioned earlier about uh, Jimmy won't whip his kid, which is fucked up, by the way. <laughs> Like, go whip our child, please, she says. And Sergeant really, really wants him to whip. She's like, you've got to get up there. you got to take the strap. you got to beat the snot. He he crossed the street. He did. He, 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 he walked across the street. you got to go up there and just beat him within an inch of his life. And he's like, I don't actually want to do that. And she's like, but he's going to think he can cross the street whenever he wants. Right. It was crazy. She's real. She's out for blood. She's like, you need to beat up our kid. But she calls him a coward, which is why it's funny because he clearly proves throughout that he is not a coward. You know, he constantly shows that he has like courage of conviction. Whereas Frank Rich is what's his name? Frank Rich. That's not his name. Frank. Frank Liss. Frank, 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 Frank Liss. Frank Liss. Yeah. Frank, Frank Niles. Niles is never called a coward and constantly shows that he's a coward. The first threat of jail, the, the cop is clearly lying to him. He's like, I'll put you away for 20 years. And this dumbass falls for it and is like, okay, all right, I'll tell you all that you want to know. <laughs> so I don't know. I thought that was a really interesting thing too of like just the dynamics of it and what they're showing us in the screenplay. They, she was also going to serve him cold tongue. So she made a lot of questionable choices. Cold jelly I mean, tongue. again, God. she... He was wearing an absolutely adorable outfit in that scene. The cutest. And I remember thinking, you know, he should just do that stuff. You know, he should just do whatever she wants. Also, weren't they so cute together? Very adorable chemistry for a procedural. Yes. They were a good couple. I liked it. When they were hugging each other and he was like, let me go. But he was hugging her and you were like, oh my God, you're playful. You're a playful couple. And she's wearing a two-piece outfit in the 40s. Yeah, they're just having fun. It was nice. 
Um, okay, so I'm glad we went through all that. Oh, I do want to tell you before we go on, though, the actor that plays Frank Niles is Howard Duff, who has been in, like, a billion things. People at home, you may know him from Kramer vs. Kramer, and he was in Brute Force, with uh, which Jules Dassin did before this. But he is very famous, especially around this time, for playing Sam Spade on the radio version. They did, like, a regular radio show that was called The Adventures of Sam Spade, so it was like the Maltese Falcon character um, on this radio show weekly, and he was really, really famous for that. And so if you like just closed your eyes and listened to him, you'd be like, oh, damn, your voice is really great. But he was he was Sam Spade, and he was married to the icon Ida Lupino. Um, I think even at this time they were married. And she's absolutely amazing, and she's like one of the queens of film noir, and she's just an epic human who was a director uh before women were really allowed to be directors it was like her and dorothy arzner and anyway so that's cool that's something that happened but i don't really know a lot about him so he could have he could have been awful and i just don't know those are the things that i know (laughs) that's very cool also the guy that played jimmy he ended up becoming like a really prolific television director he's like 96 television directing credits that's what he did after his time being an actor Um, And I mentioned he's very cute. He was the husband and the original father of the bride. That was like one of his other big roles. And he was in Stalag 17. And he played... uh, Oh, who was he in that? uh, uh, The lieutenant guy. You know what? I'm not going to... There were so... You know what? I am going to have to pull a lord. There were a lot of white men. There were a lot of men. Yeah. He also played Robin Hood uh, in The Men of Sherwood Forest, and that's kind of like his last big role. But I feel like he would be an adorable Robin Hood just based on him and this. He's very, like, Errol Flynn-esque, Carrie Elwes-esque. He suits that Robin Hood thing, I think. Yeah, he's a little cutie. I just had a little crush on him. He's a little cutie. Yeah, yeah. No, I I get it. It's coming through loud and clear. Yeah, you like (laughs) the guy. And they mention it a lot. The older woman who's rich, who's, like, awful, is constantly hitting on him. And I was like, yes, we get it. She was good, too. She did a good job in the movie. There were a lot of really nice comedic character actors just popping in, just to say hello real quick and then heading out. Can I just bring up one thing, and I want to see if this drove anybody else crazy? Because when this happened, I was like, you can't be serious. They go to Stoneman's office and they get him to admit that, uh, you know, he was in league with them and, and, you know, he had a thing for Gene Dixon. He tries to he tries to throw himself out the window, right? And then they restrain him. Yeah. And then they leave the window open. Yes. <laughs> that drove me nuts. That it's is like, so you're not funny. Shut the window? He's just sitting there in the chair like, oh, but I'm like, but he, but now you're, no one is like restraining him and you just left the, like yeah. the first thing I would do after that is shut the window. They needed the fresh air. Drove me crazy. The feeling of the root beer again. Yes. It's the yeah. exact same feeling. We just had the root beer. didn't drink it. Then they leave the window open. You're like, oh my God. I actually wrote down, there were all like, I felt like there were so many fun quirks and I just kept writing down, my little thing was like quirks. So there was both of those instances. Um, one of them was just that creepy doll in Jean Dexter's apartment for no reason, that it was just there. Did you notice the creepy doll, Lauren? Did not like that. Wait, Did not was like the creepy that. Doll? Huge creepy When doll. the housekeeper comes in right at the beginning and she makes a point of like picking up and be like, that's supposed to be leaning against the chair. And it's oh, like, Ugh. yeah. <laughs> she had a bunch of dolls. She had more up on the mantle. It was creepy. Sure. It was creepy. It reminded me of when I was, when I, when I was, when I was touring with Second City, we went to this uh, restaurant in uh, Hazard, Kentucky, 
or no, it was a hotel in Hazard, Kentucky, and the lobby just had all these dolls in it, just rows and rows of dolls. It was very frightening. Oh, it was it was a it was a it was a hotel attached to the restaurant. We didn't stay at that hotel, but I remember like someone came back from the bathroom was like, "You need to go walk into the lobby of the hotel." I mean, it was legitimately terrifying, and you're in like mountain country, Kentucky. It yeah, so dolls like that still. They, they give me the willies, man. I don't like them. Yeah, no. Which is funny because it's like, why are they so comforting when you're a child? And why are they so creepy when you're an adult? Like, why did I love an American Girl doll as a kid? Yeah. It's a certain kind of doll. It's a certain kind of doll from like that era. Like the way that they made them. Because like an American Girl doll feels very different from like a doll that like a child had in like the 40s or the 50s. Like they have an age to them. They feel like they're otherworldly. Maybe that's what it is. Like they feel like they belong in a in a time period that doesn't exist anymore. They're almost like, like living ghosts. Like these, they, 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 like they were made to be, they were played with by babies so long ago. Now those babies might not even be around anymore. Look, I can do a whole episode on this. I mean, the dolls are witnesses. The, The dolls are witnesses to the crime. You know, they saw the whole thing. This is a movie about toy dolls. First and foremost. I do want to mention another one of my, well, this wasn't a quirk I wrote down, but it did bother me that the cop got so mad at the housekeeper for like moving the body. Yes. And was like, you should have known the procedures. And she's like, I'm a regular person. Right. Why would I ever know what cops do? There is no CSI around. How would I? You still outline the body with chalk. How am I supposed to know? what to do during a crime scene. And all those crime scene people were using their bare hands with no gloves. So he's like, did you find any fingerprints on it? And I was like, his own, because he has fingers that are touching it. Yeah, that just reeked of like him being like, I'm gonna yell at a woman today who I can't The wait. first woman I see. As soon as the opportunity presents itself. Mm-hmm. Oh, perfect. Ooh, this one actually did something wrong. Here we go. Yeah. It's like the one moment in the movie he's not like jolly and like very happy. Although he did, it did show the woman not knowing made the detective, the other detective look smarter because he's like, oh, you didn't touch the sleeping pills and you're a trained cop? Great. Okay. I'm so glad yeah. that you didn't like, do it a civilian oh, Good to done. see a man still knows how to do a job. <laughs> yeah. That he literally is his job and he gets paid for better than a woman who it's is. Like, now you're smart. Yeah, he's like, you, well, you're going to get a promotion. Ooh, good job doing what you learned how to do for your job. I mean, like, look, I, you know, you watch a lot of these, Sarah, I watch a lot of these, and, like, it is very telling, like, the way that they'll treat the help or the way that, obviously, mm-hmm. that they treat, like, minorities. Like, it's always very jarring, like, because it's like you expect, based on the time period, that for, it is what it is, right? People were relegated to certain roles in film. But, like, sometimes it will feel like they just, like, drop the movie just to, like, yell at somebody who's different for, like, you know, like two, three lines, and then they keep going. Like, it almost feels like this just like, and let's remember that we're male white supremacists. Let's keep, let's just keep that in there. And now back to your movie. Okay. Like, and I mean, yes. you know, I guess that, yeah, that is the case. I am so glad you brought that up because that's part of the modern lens stuff where um, I was really annoyed by the treatment of women throughout the film in general. Like, and you're mentioning it would happen to like, anybody that's not like cis straight white man <laughs> but like the way they the housekeeper for example we just mentioned he like yells at her for not knowing how to handle a crime scene and then the way they treat her in the script is she's hysterical and can't answer a basic question and she's an idiot 
right? right. They, they make her look like a moron. And whenever there's a woman, another one of my quirks that I mentioned, I wrote slap fest when uh, Ruth, what, I think her name's Ruth, the model friend, when she finds out Frank is a liar and she just starts slapping him. She's like, you know, liar, yeah. slap, slap, slap. It's like over the top and they have to pull her off and be like, whoa, lady, back off. Like they just constantly treat the women like they are dumb and or incorrect. Like the, like um, Jimmy's wife. How she wants to like whip her kid. I think people at home are supposed to be like, oh, can you believe that? Like they just constantly make the woman look like total dumbasses who are completely incapable and yeah. they can't even get away with the crime. They're going to get murdered for it. I really, I really saw that too in that short little scene of the woman going, imagine me in that. And her friend just goes, I can't imagine. Because there's the same Brooklyn-y women in the beginning that are like, she went out with her boyfriend and he went too yes. far, or whatever she says. Some girls get all the luck. And so like every woman in this, except for the housekeeper, is like thinking about a man or seen in relation yes. to a man or being objectified by a man when they're like, hey, watch that dame's legs. And he's like, I could do it all day or whatever. You know, <laughs> it gets constantly. And oh, I wish yeah. my daughter had just been born ugly. I died at that. Oh. Dear God, why couldn't she have been born ugly? Because the women are only valued for how they look. That's it. Or how they clean or how they take care of their kids. Um, so that's hard to watch. I did uh, also want to add that I think it's cool that we have footage of all five boroughs. I like that they made sure that the case ended up in all five boroughs at one point or another. So we have footage Ooh. of all five at that point in time, which is pretty cool. That's cool. Also, just shout out to the fact that there was like a milkman and an old timey ice person that took the little tongs and pulled the ice out of an ice case. That was really fun to watch. There was a lot of that sort of just slices of history of just this era of New York, late 40s New York, and like, like you know, the kids playing in the, in the water in the street. All, all the photography was really beautiful. It was, it, was, it, was, it was all the stuff of the city was really quite a pleasure to look at. It's visually gorgeous. I agree. Yeah. When I wasn't looking at the same <laughs> damn man over and over again, I really well, liked what I saw. Well, the shots are interesting. Like Jules Jassen always finds a way to make something look beautiful or frame something a certain way. You know, like even at the end when we're looking at the bridge and it's like you're looking up at his face through the the bridge slats and the cops are in like a V or like uh, at the end when Frank is like we see him in the jail cell, like perfectly framed through the bars. Like there's always something gorgeous about the shot. Well, I wanted Frank to be like, I'm not in jail right now. No, you are. You you're are. Just <laughs> Got me again. The director of this film is Jules Dassin. Uh, he's really cool. He made this film. He made a film before this one called Brute Force. He made a film after this one called Night in the City. Um, and then uh, the House of American Activities Committee. Well, okay. So I should mention this. Jules Dassin um, was a Jewish immigrant from Ukraine. And he grew up in New York. And um, in the late 30s, he was, kind of, he was part of the group theater. or No, the federal theater. I mixed those two up. Whatever. He was <laughs> part of a famous theater project. And... Um, he joined the Communist Party for a few years and then left at the start of World War II when he saw like what Russia was doing and he wasn't cool with it because, you know, he was a Jewish person. Um, but that came back to bite him in the ass later because the House of Un-American Activities Committee called him in and he was one of the people that wouldn't testify. So it totally destroyed his career. Um, oh. So he had he left America and went to France and he ends up making films there. Um, he makes one called Rafifi, which I still have not seen. Liam brought it up on the show once and I was like, I don't know. Um, but it's supposed to be really good. It's like a heist film that's famous for having like a really extended sequence with no talking. Um, but like communication. <laughs> and he doesn't really 
do a ton of work in Hollywood after that. He only has a couple films. So I feel like we kind of lost him as a filmmaker because of HUAC. And that's such a shame. And that's really stupid. Um, some other films that he did are Never on Sunday, which I think is about a prostitute. He did, oh, Topkapi, Phaedra. And I think he did those in Greece because um, he eventually ends up in Greece and marries a Greek actress. And he's one of the people that, um, do you know how the Elgin marbles from the Parthenon are in the British Museum and they shouldn't be there? Like they should be in Greece. He He's like started a foundation to get them back to Greece. And I don't remember if he succeeded. I don't feel like he did because I saw the Elgin marbles <laughs> in the British Museum when I was in high school. So I don't think he succeeded. Um, but that was like a big goal of oh, his man. to get like parts of Greek history back to Greece. That's sad, man, because they got to get them out of there. They got to get those marbles. They, they lost their marbles. Get them out of there. They, that's right. Very good, Lord. Yes. Very nice. Also, one fun fact about Jules Dassin was he did Yiddish theater when he was a teenager, like professional Yiddish theater. And it was like the plays of Shalom Aleichem, the famous playwright that eventually we get Fiddler on the Roof. Like his story is that. So I was like, oh, that's fun. That's a fun little tidbit about Jules Dassin. So yeah, it says online that he didn't love the final cut of this movie because he felt like the producer got his hands on it and changed some things. But I don't know. I I think it's good. Whatever. Wait, one more thing is we talked about Barry Fitzgerald at the top. Barry Fitzgerald plays Muldoon, who's like the older Irish cop who's guiding Jimmy along and figuring things out with him. I mentioned he won an Oscar for Going My Way. And he's also in a ton of famous movies and was like a really prolific character actor. And some of his biggest roles were in The Quiet Man, How Green Was My Valley, and and then there were none. So that's Barry Fitzgerald. So yeah, let's do some more modern lens. I mean, we mentioned a lot of these. No people of color, except for one person was like in a serving position. The whipping of the kid, the objectification <laughs> of women. One of the quotes I marked down was, she needs a good spanking because women are constantly being painted as lesser than in this. Oh, God. I don't know. There's one woman in this who's very much advocating for the spanking of children. So he went all the way across the street. You got to get up. You got to go there and just beat him senseless. You got to do it. You got to do it right now. Then come back down here and eat a a tongue sandwich. That's what life was in the 40s, man. I love that he brings it up later, too, with his buddy. And he's like, my wife got mad at me because I wouldn't beat my kid. And the other guy's like, well, my wife gets mad at me and I don't have a kid. Bonding. That was that was funny. <laughs> the last modern lens one I have was the dog shooting. That was pretty hard to watch. Did you guys have any extra modern lenses that like don't hold up that we didn't cover? You know, my my two big things were that window being open and and Frank Niles just being one of the greatest characters in the history of <laughs> cinema. Like he like I I probably will go back and just watch the, those scenes where he's like, yeah, I got this in the army, and they're like, oh, we found out you weren't in the army. <laughs> It's so funny. Oh, Oh, yeah, I know. I wanted to go, though. Am I right, everybody? But doesn't he do such a good acting job that I think his performance is really good in this? I was just like, are you, is he crazy? Are you, is this person insane? Like, that's what I started to think after a while. It's like, this guy, my man cannot stop lying to police. You just reminded me of the other two, the actual two insane people that show up both of those scenes were really funny because there's the one woman that comes in and she's like, hello, she's elderly. And she's like, I'm 20 years old. And my yeah. grandpa is the oh my God, yes. chief, chief of police in Mississippi. And they're like, okay, lady, I forget what they say to her, but yeah. it's a comedic moment. Yes. Muldoon is just like, <laughs> I know that's true. That is, please continue. This is, he's just loving it. And she's like, I found out that your murderer is actually, and it's just like, 
I feel like that's like that that eight million people thing. Because afterward, he says something just like this happens every single time that they put it in the paper. Like, oh yeah, and then the second crazy guy who he's like, just tell me where you hid the knife you killed her with. He's like, you'll never find the knife. They're like, yeah, okay, thank you again for your like just. <laughs> Just a city of lunatics. Yeah. Just a city just brimming with crazy people. That was that was pretty funny too. Well, and that is what's cool about Muldoon, I guess, in that he really does take everything very cool. It's like he's been doing this for so long, what, 22 years or something like that? And so everything to him, like he's still having fun doing this. He doesn't want to go home at the end of the night, really. He enjoys his job so much, but he he sees everything and meets it in a very cool way. There's never, he never gets excitable, really, I think. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But yeah, nothing really throws him. Even at the end when they're shooting, he's like, everybody be calm. <laughs> yeah, no, he's like, he's like a sort of a father figure. It feels like to everybody else. Like, again, it's that reassurance. It's like, it's gonna be fine. We're just gonna do this the way that we've done it every other time. All of, yeah. all this happens every time. Like, it's like sort of like another underlying theme of this movie of like, Yep, this is this is what it is to solve a crime, solve a case. We've done it a billion times before. I'm gonna do, tomorrow. It'll start again. It'll be somebody else. Yeah. It'll be the same thing. Like, and it just and the ball keeps rolling, and the great American way of life continues to move forward. Although I did just say he was really calm, except for when he talks to housekeepers, and then he loses his shit for a couple minutes. And then he's calm again. That's the only time. Yeah, whenever he wants to yell at a woman, then he, then... A guy is literally, like, claiming that he did the murder, and he knows it's not him, and he's just sort of like, eh, funny old guy. But, like, when a housekeeper, like, moves the body of, like, the woman whose home she's been cleaning for, you know, what, 20 years or whatever it is, he's like, you dumb old woman, you... Don't you know protocol is you don't touch a body? It's like, oh yeah, she should she should have known. That definitely should have come up. She's a widow too. He yells at a widow. He yells at a widow and gets mad when she's flustered after all of this. And he's like, why are you flustered? I didn't just yell at you about removing a dead body of someone that you cared about. It would have been really funny if there was like a scene, like a scene later where he like remembered her and was like, Argh! like just like got mad. Like it's like, oh, we were going to bring that housekeeper in for questions. Like, don't bring her in. Like just, just carries it with him throughout the picture and just like gets mad at her again. Like. That would have been a really funny running gag that at the time wouldn't have been a gag and just would have had like men in the theater like taking a drag off their pipe and being like, been there. Plus, they show that she's into him kind of at that one point when he like pulls the uh, piece of her hair because they want the DNA. Oh, yeah. And she thinks he's like stealing a lock of her hair because he loves her and she's into it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that could have been called back at some point. I wouldn't have minded. She's like, this man yelled at me but this man is so attractive to me. And I love that he's touching my head without permission. And I think that based on every interaction I've had with him so far, I think I wanna, yeah, I wanna be with him. They really portray the women in a really good light in this. In this viewing, I also realized that Gene Dexter and Jimmy Holleran are the same age, 26. So it's like, this is how your life could be if you choose to live it right, or if you choose to be a crook. So it's got like the two, <laughs> don't go for riches, just be normal is like the whole thing of this movie. Like they really want us to feel this way. And then I also love the kids playing the game, the alligator purse game. Um, Cause it's like, we still have that nursery rhyme thing today. 
Like in comes the doctor, in comes the nurse, in comes the lady with the alligator purse. Yeah, my kids have the book upstairs. See, I just love that, that that's like a still a tie into today. And then the other thing I wanted to ask about and point out was those children are really swimming in the East River. Is that allowed today? And did they die of pollution? Isn't no one allowed in the East River? Isn't it just like toxic? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah, they probably had a bunch of weird growths and stuff that popped up, you know, yeah. later in life. Back then it was okay because everyone, everyone drank more and smoked more so they could handle stuff like that. Their bodies could handle it. <laughs> right. You know, now these days where we don't have like a cocktail every time that you walk into your office, like we're not quite as tough anymore, so we can't handle that. But, you know, those kids were like 12. They probably had had like three or four four drinks ready that day so i think they were probably fine do you think that when um the kids pulled the dead body out of the river muldoon yelled at them for moving the body no he was probably like look at you chaps swimming in the water yeah you did such a good job your boys did a great job getting that body out of the water i've i've never been so happy to be around it he's go he just became australian there'd be around that good group of young lads and then he like took them all probably out for uh, root beer and then left it on the table. We've made it to the end of the show and now we're going to do the double feature portion of this podcast. If you liked this movie and you want to watch something like it, what should you watch? I'm so glad you asked. Um, it's really hard to pair this movie because it's so tonally unique from a lot of films that are like it. I feel like Sweet Smell of Success would be a really good movie to watch this with, even though that's like a lot darker and sadder. Um, but it's also like the underbelly of New York and like someone walking around New York all night and the news are involved. I don't know. I think it'd be a good double feature. I think Saboteur, the Hitchcock film, would also be a good double feature. Spoiler alert, because there's also a death from a great landmark in New York. Um, also, I haven't seen a bunch of the movies that I feel like I would recommend with this. Like I've never seen While the City Sleeps, but apparently that's supposed to be a good New York City noir. I know, I feel like you've seen Scarlet Street and you told me to see Scarlet Street and I haven't seen it, but I bet you that would be a good pairing with us. Yeah, I, I think I think so, for sure. Scarlet Street is, is darker yeah. than this. Um, the other ones I wrote down were like The Big Clock, uh, Brute Force, which is uh, Jules Dassin's other film that he did, Night in the City, which is, it takes place in London, but it's another Jules Dassin film that looks really beautiful. And then I feel like... Um, Double Indemnity would be good with this because it kind of frames a story in a unique way. And it's almost like we would see what Jean Dexter would have been like if she had been alive, if we had known her alive in the Barbara Stanwyck role. So I think that would be good. Well, and Stoneman is is, is sort of her uh, Fred McMurray, right? I had that same thought. Um, and then yeah. I wrote Riffy even though I haven't seen it, because again, Jules Dassin Heist film. But then if you want like fun films that are totally more fun, um, I feel like uh, Laura, The Big Sleep, Murder My Sweet, all solid ones to watch with this. And then Out of the Past is like the most famous noir of all time. So I put that down, even though it's not really my favorite noir. Those are my choices, which again, no one cares and no one will watch them, but I think it's fun to make up associative trails. Do you guys have any films that you would want to watch this with or that you think would be good pairings? Nothing's really coming to mind. I gotta be honest with you. Instead, you could just say a movie that you like. Yeah, do you want to say a movie that you'd like, rather would have watched than this? You know, I know I'm glad I watched it. No regrets. I'm glad I watched it. Respect. Because I think there were parts of it that were really great and interesting and cool. Yeah. It would be good if you could watch it with, like, that Amazon X-ray thing. You know what yeah. that is? Well, it'd be cool if they yeah. could remake it in HD so I could see it better. 
And if they could all be colors. Mm, that's so true. And maybe if they could like cast people that just weren't all white men so that they didn't all look the same to you. Yeah, exactly. That would help a lot. Yeah, that could help. Yeah. Those are good points. Daniel, did you have any double feature things that you wanted to add? I, ha I have two that I'll throw out there. Um, one of them, as I've stolen virtually everything I've said in this conversation from the uh, two videos I watched on the Criterion channel, I'm going to steal something else. The movie, the, when they interviewed the Safdie brothers, talk about this movie and another film called In a Lonely Place, uh, another noir that's a Humphrey Bogart movie. Uh, it, it, it takes place in Los Angeles, so it's sort of, you know, obviously the other side of the country. It, I, th I think it pairs well with this. It, um, it, it, if, if, if New York is this bustling, uh, busy city full of people, L.A. feels empty, lonely, quiet, um, exactly how it, it feels here. And the toxic masculine compared, because it's like he is basically Frank in that kind oh, of, man. like this white man that doesn't want to admit anything or take responsibility for his actions. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books. And the two of them, I mean, Gloria Graham too, like it's a great movie. Um, and then another one that I thought of while we were talking just now, because you talked about the relationship between um, Howard and his wife, is uh, The Big Heat. Uh, which is a movie where the, the uh, I remember when I saw it the first time thinking about the, the protagonist's relationship with his wife, even though it is, spoilers, cut short. Um, they have, a when, when you first see them together, you're like, oh, they feel very modern in a way that most relationships uh, do not in this era. Even more modern, I think, than in this movie. They, it really feels like they have like a, like a, marriage and a partnership that you rarely see depicted on screen from that era so there you go i mean you know I, and i say this all the time but let him eat cake you know and and lauren is eating some cake <laughs> that means i think you know we're, we're wrapping up here we're relax gonna, we're, we're, i muted did myself you, <laughs> did you make that cake yes is that your cake looks great all right, stop. Okay. Continue what we were talking no, about. It looks good. It looks like Don't good derail cake. Sarah's podcast. I didn't derail it. You're the one you're eating cake. It looks like good cake. It looks delicious. What kind of cake is it? It looks is really one? good. Bring it back on camera. <gasps> oh. oh my god, it's stunning. It's a beautiful cake. That looks professional. Thank you so much. I'm gonna Thank eat like you. chips after this. I'm gonna also eat cake, but Trader Joe's made it, not me. And it doesn't have flowers like that. Nice. Congratulations. I'm sure it's still gonna be Lauren. great. Great job. On that note, um, thank you both for coming on this show. This was really fun. I really enjoy having you guys on my show. Sarah, thank you so much. And you are n never going to ask me back on this show because I am an absolutely useless guest, but I appreciate it so much. And it's been fun to hang out with you guys. And I would like to echo those sentiments. Exactly. Thank you so much for having me. Every Everything Lauren said, I would <laughs> hard agree on. Um, you know, just she's was disastrous. She's eating food before the show has wrapped up. She seems completely exhausted from what I don't know. Um, but it, but it was it was still fun to be here. It was still fun to have fun. And it was still great to just to, to do what I love to do, which is talk about the movies on Zoom. Well, everybody, oh God. we'll see you all next time, even though we won't see you. I still haven't come up with a better tagline. We'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me! My guests this week were Lauren Lopez and Daniel Strauss. They will be featured on our Instagram page.
If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>